Father, we now come with hungry and contrite hearts, desiring now to focus upon what the Spirit of God might speak to our hearts in this evening session. Lord, I pray that you would add to our faith. I pray that we would grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that as we learn about your plan and about your Son, that this knowledge about you would be transformed into knowledge of you personally. We might know your heart, and that that would be reflected in the way we make our choices and live our life. Lord, remind us that Jesus going to the cross means that you own us now, lock, stock, and barrel. The pink slip of our lives has been turned over to you. And you are calling the shots. You are doing the driving. So have your will with us. Have your way with us. We ask, Lord, that if some have come who have not surrendered, that they would experience the greatest joy of all in surrendering their lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Driving home today after third service, I decided to do something I'd never done. I counted road signs with my son. I just wanted to see how many road signs there are in space of about six miles. And I counted not business signs, just road signs. Stop, caution, the lights with directions and so forth, and just the road signs in a space of six miles and Some of the signs I only counted once, although there were two signs, like 40 miles an hour and then one uh, on the median and one on the right side. But I just counted, I figured that's one sign. I counted 93 signs, road signs. If you were to count all of them, there'd be well over 100 in the space of six miles. You know, I think there's a business you want to get into is do road signs or orange barrels, one of the two. Some of the road signs were instructive road signs, you know, 40 miles an hour, 45 miles an hour, stop, things like that. Others were prohibitive rather than instructive. Um, No U-turn, things like that. Other signs were regulatory signs, you know, stop lights, stop, slow, go, the green lights. And then there were those yellow road signs, the road signs of caution. One sign showing an intersection up ahead, another one showing pedestrian crossing or bicycle crossing. One with a fire truck showing that a fire station is coming up. Be cautious, watch out in case those trucks are pulling out. They have the right of way. The 12th chapter of Luke is like a bunch of yellow road signs strewn together on a pathway. They're signs of caution, warning, beware for the disciples of Jesus Christ in their relationship to God at this stage in their life. A lot of people see chapter 12 as a bunch of teachings strewn together with really no um, cooperation with each other. 
no connection to each other. And that may be so that Luke was just simply pulling out the most, um, uh, the ones that the Holy Spirit wanted him to write. But I do see a connection. There seems to be several warning signs that are listed together. And uh, the first beware is in verse 1. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another. You think it's hard coming to church here Sunday morning. He began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The disciples were at a very dangerous place in terms of the amount of people and the kinds of people that were following Jesus. They needed to be warned. They needed to be cautious. There were crowds of people following Jesus, not all of them with the best or highest motivations. They were hanging out. They were curious, many of them. Many of them were not interested in truth as much as they were interested in having a felt need met by Jesus. I have a need. I want you to fix it. Jesus was becoming popular. And the danger is that when you have popularity, when the crowds are coming around like they were coming around Jesus, is that you fall into the danger of wanting to please the crowd, keep them coming back. Hey, this is exciting to have so many thousands of people following us around Galilee and Jerusalem. Therefore, let's do whatever we can and Keep these crowds coming. Also, there were Pharisees, scribes, enemies of Jesus Christ among the crowd. They were also sensing the popularity of Jesus, but they were jealous. They saw that the rope of authority, the grip that they once had upon the people, was less and less for them and more and more for Jesus. The people would follow and look to Jesus more than the designated rulers. And this really bothered these rulers. They wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to trap him. They were plotting against Jesus to do away with him. So there was the danger of being afraid of another portion of the crowd. Better watch what I say and watch what I do because they may not like it. And again, it goes back to what we mentioned this morning. The fear of man brings a snare. The snare because of the popularity or the snare because of the enemies capitulating to the whims of the crowd. And so there's a list of warning signs. First of all, beware of leaven. Uh, leaven is a symbol throughout the Bible. And I want to clear something up about leaven. Some interpret leaven i.e. the parable of the leaven. Jesus said in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman put in a measure of meal and it leavened the whole thing. And some people say, well, that's the spread of the gospel. Leaven is a sign of the gospel. It's the sign of the good news spreading throughout all the world. Well, the gospel has spread. The problem with that is that in the Bible, leaven is seen as a symbol of evil, not of good. In the Old Testament, the sacrifices were commanded to be offered without leaven. God told the children of Israel to leave Egypt in haste, and when they cooked their bread, to not put leaven in it, to cook it as unleavened wafers or matzah. Whenever you read of leaven, you read it in a negative kind of a context, a warning, 
an evil context. And so the leaven and the kingdom of God spreading throughout the earth, the idea is that evil would pervade in the work of God throughout the centuries. And we've gone into that at other times. But suffice it to say that it's obviously negative here, isn't it? Beware of the leaven or the yeast, actually. It's a piece of fermented dough. And when uh, women would cook their bread, they would knead their dough, and they would always have a little piece of the chometz, the leaven. They'd put it on a windowsill, and uh, it is the fermenting agent, the corrupting agent of the dough. You put a little bit of yeast in it, and that yeast will spread through the whole batch of dough. To beware of hypocrisy... Hypocrisy is a spiritual leavening agent. It begins small. It grows quickly and it grows quietly. And hypocrisy is to the human soul what yeast is to bread. It puffs it up. And a person who lives under a mask, by the way, that's what hypocrisy means. The Greek word hypocrites was a good word at first. It means an actor. If a guy won an Academy Award... If you lived in the ancient times, it would be hypocrite of the year. That was a good designation back then. You'd go to a Greek play and go, man, those were good hypocrites tonight. What you mean by that is they wore the mask well. They played the part. They convinced you that they were that character. They played such a convincing role. They wore the mask so well, they were a good actor. They were a hypocrite. Now, it came to mean something evil. Somebody who wears a mask because he's hiding or she's hiding who he or she really is. Spiritual hypocrisy is the worst, right? Because it's the kind of a person who will do anything to make other people think that he or she is more spiritual than they really are. Just to get the, the reputation. Reputation is more important to the, that person than character what that person really is. I don't want you to know who I really am, so I'll put on this mask so you think I'm a certain person. When it comes to coming to church, it's interesting the masks we wear. I've even had a couple who have admitted, they said, man, I remember in our marriage, we'd fight all the way to church. Something miraculous happened as soon as we drove into the church parking lot, this amazing transformation my, how church parking lots have been used by God to transform lives. Get out of the car, and all of a sudden, you put a big smile, plaster it on, and walk to the door. Hey, God bless you, brother. Arm in arm. Thinking inside, I'm going to punch you out when we get home. How are you guys doing? Oh, great. Praise God. Wonderful. Oh, we love each other. Why can't you just be who you are? Why can't we just say, well, we had a spat on the way to church. Well, Christians aren't supposed to do that, are they? Christians are to be honest. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just come and fellowship and be who we are and say, having a bad day. Instead of people walking up to you and say, smile, man. Why? Should you always smile? What if it's not really in your heart? What if you're plagued by something? What if you're bothered? What if you need an encouraging word? better to just be honest and receive the healing and the help from the body of Christ. Beware. First yellow signal of the leaven 
of the Pharisees, which is wearing the mask or hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered, the idea of the mask, covering the face. For in the ancient times, they would have a thin material put on a stick, typically for the Greek dramas, and it was just a little covering over the face. Some of them had smiles, some of them had sad faces. didn't matter what face you wore behind it, the mask would cover it up. But after the show, the mask comes off, and you see who that, really, that person really is, and you can say, hey, fine job you did tonight. But now you're dealing with the real individual, not the mask anymore. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. The temptation to gain the popularity of the crowds or to avoid the scorn of the enemies is the same leaven, the same problem that the Pharisees had, and Jesus is warning his disciples about that. Now, it's tempting to get people to like us at any cost, to do whatever we can to be accepted by them, and so many of us are afraid to really be real with people because we think, well, they won't like the real me. And so we have this super ego, this ideal self. This is who I want people to think I am. This is what I really think I am underneath. And so I'm going to project that. Instead of just being who I am, I'm afraid that people will reject me if they find out who I really am, so I'll be somebody else or something else. We want to be accepted rather than be real. There's a children's book. I gave it to my son, and I've loved it, called The Velveteen Rabbit. There's a little section in The Velveteen Rabbit where the skin horse, if you've ever read the book, and the rabbit are having a conversation. The skin horse had lived longer in the nursery than any of the others. He was so old that his brown coat was bald in patches and showed the seams underneath. And most of the hairs in his tail had been pulled out to string bead necklaces. He was wise, for he had seen a long succession of mechanical toys arrive to boast and swagger, and by and by break their mainsprings and pass away, and he knew that they were only toys and would never turn into anything else. For nursery magic is a very strange and wonderful thing, and only those playthings that are old and wise and experience like the skin horse understand all about it. What is real? asked the rabbit one day when they were lying side by side near the fuzzy, or excuse me, near the nursery fender before Nana came in to tidy the room. Does it mean having things that buzz inside of you and stick out? Real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but, you know, really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, asked the rabbit, or bit by bit? Oh, it doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become 
It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off. Your eyes drop out and get loose in the joints and you get very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to the people who don't understand. Isn't that beautiful? Once you're real, you can't be ugly except to those who don't understand. Dropping the masks, being who you are, being accepted for who you are, that's what the body of Christ is all about. But now the temptation that these disciples are facing with the enemies and with the crowd who are there for the wrong motivations. And I say to you, verse 4, I say to you, my friends, don't you love that about Jesus? He didn't say, I say to you, my subjects, my servants, though we are his servants, we are his subjects. He is the Lord and he is the master of all. But Jesus delighted in calling us friends. He even said to his disciples, from here on out, I'm not going to call you servants. I'm going to call you my friends. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore... You are of more value than the sparrows. The word fear is mentioned five times here. And I think that there is a relationship between hypocrisy and fear. The cause of hypocrisy is the fear of men. We're afraid of what they're going to think of us. We're afraid of what they're going to do to us. So we want to guard at all costs because we are afraid of the people if we'll be accepted or rejected by them. We live in perpetual fear because we feel like we're being judged by the people around us. And we might be, but you can't live under that. I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Now the Bible says the fear of God is what? The beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. It says that twice in the Old Testament. The idea of fearing God, though Jesus mentions hell here, the idea is that it begins with a reverence for God rather than I'm living because I'm afraid of what God's going to do, that he's going to smack me upside the head. The idea is that I have a reverence for God. I have a fear of God in the sense that he is all-powerful. He is the creator of everything. And ultimately, he's the judge of everyone. And when I am more concerned about God's view of me rather than people's view of me, it enables me to be real, to live without masks of hypocrisy, to have a healthy fear. Jesus mentions in verse 6, Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. He's talking about this love that God has for you and that we should have a reverence for him. The very hairs of your head are numbered. That's always fascinated me. 
If, uh, if you are light-haired, that is, if you have blonde hair, the average light-headed person has 145,000 hairs. The average dark-haired person, between brown and black, has the average of 120,000 hairs. Uh, the average redhead has about 90,000 hairs. Now, who cares? Not only that, not only is God detailed, I mean, just, the idea is Jesus is showing how meticulously concerned God is for his children. God knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. He knows how many hairs are on your head, and that changes daily. Put a brush through your hair tonight when you get home. It's going to change. Now imagine having somebody tabulate that. God knows instantly. Boom. Now, for some, it's easy. It's like one <laughs> or 20. Some have 180,000, and you know, it's real thick. And... But God is concerned. And he's drawing sort of an analogy between the animal kingdom and the kingdom of men and women. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Now, in our world, that's changing. The emphasis today is to devalue human life and to place more value on animal life. $5,000 fine in Maryland for anyone who threatens the life of an American eagle. $5,000 fine. It is illegal in our country to ship pregnant lobsters to the market. In Massachusetts, the use of goldfish for contests where they give away little goldfish if you want a little prize is outlawed. That little goldfish has feelings. It has rights. But, and uh, law was passed, 47 senators passed a law, agreed on the law that Dogs should not be used for certain kinds of experimentation. Hey, listen, I'm, I'm all for the kind treatment of animals. But when you have people picketing in New York City, save the whales, save the turtles, save the goldfish, and yet the very same people are advocating abortion of the human fetus on demand, we're whack hammer. We've got it all backwards. We're devaluing human life like Hinduism has done in India, and we're elevating animal life. There's a, in India, a friend of mine was in India, and he talked to the bus driver who had to make a choice as he was driving down the road. There was a cow and there was a human being. He had to make a quick, momentary decision, didn't know what to do, and he opted to run into the human and kill the man so that he wouldn't kill that sacred cow because the cow is a god. You, you're expendable. That's what false religion has done to an entire nation. And that's what the false religion of humanism is doing to our nation. But in God's eyes, you are of more value than any animal. You have an eternal soul. 
And where you spend eternity is important to God. And you might feel tonight like nobody cares about you. And it might be that in this world nobody really does care about you, but God cares about you in a detailed way. He sent His Son to die for you and He knows how many hairs you have in your head. He knows everything about you and He cares for you and you are valuable to Him. It might be that you have no friend in the world, but you've got a friend who sticks closer than a brother and he'll never let you down. He'll always be there. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God, but he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now I think that you could tie that into what Jesus said about hypocrisy. When you confess God publicly, it is much harder to be the hypocrite because now you're publicly accountable. If you hide it, nobody knows, hey, get away with whatever. But when you announce, I'm a Christian, I love God, I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm devoted to him, then you're held accountable. And the knowledge that God approves me and Jesus confesses me before the Father, when I realize that, overshadows my worry about what somebody else thinks about me. Hey, God approves me. I'm confessed before the very throne of heaven. So you don't like me? Eh, who cares? You might be rejected on earth, but accepted in heaven. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but... To him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Then one from the crowd said to him, Jesus is in the middle of teaching his disciples. There's somebody in the crowd. He's probably got not only disciples, but a whole lot of interested people for different reasons there. He said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? You might label this now caution sign number two. Beware of covetousness. Because notice what Jesus says in the next verse. Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. It was common that if you had an unsettled dispute, you'd find a rabbi that was kind of famous and you'd bring your case before him and he would settle the dispute. Jesus has an interesting comeback. First of all, the guy interrupted something Jesus is teaching to his disciples. Secondly, his request is selfish. And Jesus' response is, Hey man, who made me to be the judge, the arbiter, the arbitrator in this case over you? And then he announced to the whole crowd, Beware of covetousness. Here's a good example. Here's another thing to be aware of. To be aware of. Why did Jesus answer him this way? Because the real issue was greed. The issue wasn't, Lord, will you save me? It's, Lord, will you serve me? I want to use you, Jesus, to get something that I need, that I perceive that I need. So do this for me, will you? 
You know, there's a lot of people that look at God that way. God is a means to their end. Oh, God. Oh, good. Jesus. So I'll just lay a hold of something and claim it real strongly in Jesus' name. I claim all the wealth. I claim the big house. I claim the new car. They're using God for their own self-aggrandizement. And Jesus just said, you know, he just kind of, instead of trying to settle the issue, he realized that you can never settle the issue when it's for selfish reasons, when it's for greedy reasons. Now, in counseling sessions, there are some times where we can't really counsel a person because the person has come in under pretense. They've come in saying, hey, we want, we want you to tell us, you know, whatever we need to hear. And I will often ask a person, especially if it's a dispute, if it's a marital dispute, a husband or wife come in and they're interested about sometimes the loopholes of marriage. Can I get a divorce? And I'll often ask them, I say, I have a preliminary question. The question is this, when you find out in our time together, when you find out whatever it is that is God's will for your life in this given situation, whatever it is, and I'm not going to tell you right now what it is, but when you find out and that is revealed to you, are you willing to obey at any cost? Their answer determines how long that counseling session will go on. If they say, well, it depends. I'll say, well, then we're done. God bless you. If they say, yes, whatever it takes, I'll obey. I say, then we, we've got room to work. Let's find out what it is. Let's search the scriptures. Let me hear about your case. This was sort of an unsolvable case. Teacher, tell my brother. Well, what if the problem's with you, pal? Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He wanted Jesus to serve him rather than to save him. He said, take heed and beware. This is caution sign number two. Beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And he spoke to them a parable, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul? You have many goods laid up for many years. Never heard of somebody talking to themselves that way. You know, self. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be that you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The Romans used to have a saying that money was like ocean water. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. The idea here is not money. The idea here is the desire for it, covetousness. Now let's settle an issue. I have heard this text out of Timothy misquoted. Money is the root of all evil. Have you ever heard that? It's a lie. It's not. And that's not what the Bible says. The love of money. You can be poor and be guilty. It's the desire. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
In fact, let's turn to the text. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where that particular one is found. Let's look at it in context. Since Jesus is dealing with covetousness, it may speak to our hearts. Let's pick it up around verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what we've been reading, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil, suspicions, useless wranglings of men, of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. The holier I'll get, the richer I'll get. From such, withdraw yourself. Don't even fellowship with such. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Why? Because we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain that we can carry nothing out. That's the balance of wisdom, is it not? Have you ever seen a hearse hauling a U-Haul trailer? As if to take it with him? Make sure that when I die, you... Bury me in my car with all my jewels and watches and things. Why? You're not going to enjoy them. We came in naked. We're going to leave with nothing. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Now notice. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction. And perdition. This notion that God loves the poor and hates the rich is erroneous, it is fallacious, it is wrong. It's not the rich. It's a person who is covetous. And the idea in Greek, by the way, is stretching yourself out to grab something at all costs. Pleonexia is the word. To stretch yourself out to do anything because you are not satisfied with your lot. There's got to be something more. If I only had, and I'll do anything I can to get it. That's covetousness. For the love of money, verse 10, is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now look at the Bible. There were many people who were very wealthy and godly. Job owned more than anybody else in his region at his time, and God bragged that he was the godliest guy running around the landscape. Abraham was very rich, had many servants, he had his own army, stretched out all over the land. David, Solomon, Barnabas, Lydia, to name a few. Very wealthy, very godly, for the most part. There are perils, however. Number one, peril, riches can choke the seed of the word of God. Jesus said that. He said, beware, watch out for that. It can choke out the word of God. Secondly, rich people can become self-sufficient. They can start thinking, hey, I don't need to trust as much. When I get into a jam, all I have to do is get into the bank account. I'll bail myself out of this one. And that's a false sense of security. A third problem is what do I do with the money that I have? And I think that is a big issue. I think that's a tough issue. i got to tell you, the people that I have known that have the most wealth usually have the most complicated lives. And it kind of leads to a, a fourth peril that rich people have. Who really are your friends? <laughs> 
When people say, hey, bro, why are they saying it? Why are they being so nice? Do they really love you? It's the dilemma of the rich man who gets married. Is she marrying him for his money or because she really loves him? Guys that have won lotteries, by the way, have had that problem. They have been abused and used by people who seemingly loved them, but it was a feigned love. They were used to achieve somebody else's goals. Um, Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. I'll tell you why I'm turning here. Because covetousness is generally not regarded as a big deal by most Christians. Have you noticed that? You know, St. Francis said, I've had men come to me and confess every conceivable sin except covetousness. Yet, the Bible places covetousness on a par with the most vile kind of sin there is. Notice. Therefore, be followers or imitators of God as dear children and walk in love, agape, as Christ also loved us and given himself for us an offering, a sweet-smelling sacrifice, an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints, neither foolishness nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, covetousness is idolatry, placing something as a higher priority than God, has any inheritance in the kingdom of of Christ and God. You live in a country filled with um, the allurements of the media. And, And folks, understand that the boys on Madison Avenue and in Hollywood, boys and gals in those executive positions work hard, lose sleep to make you unsatisfied. That's their job. They are paid and they're paid big bucks to make you feel like you are left out unless you have that latest cut of blue jeans, that latest product. And and they with their slick advertising that you watch, make you feel like, man, I'm left out. I got got to spend the money. I got to get that to be somebody. Now, start watching for it. When you watch commercials on television, watch with sensitive eyes and ears. And I tell you what I advocate, talk back to the TV. (laughs) When they invade your house and they say, you need this, you need that, you can be someone, talk back to the TV. Say, that's bunk. Who are you kidding? I don't believe that. I don't need that. You need to hear some different messages, and if nobody else is going to give them to you, you might as well yell it back to the TV. (laughs) The balance I have found is in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. Let me me tell you what it says. You can turn to it if you like. You can write it down and read it for later. The writer of that proverb, his name was Augur, said... Two things I request of you, Lord, before I die, or grant them to me before I die. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that you have prescribed for me. Lord, don't let me be poor. Don't let me be too rich. Give me what you think in your sovereign love that you've dictated for my life. 
lest I be full and deny you, or lest I be poor and steal, and I cause a reproach on the name of my God. Give me that balance. Lord, you know what I need. You know how responsible I am. You know how much and what it would do to me. (laughs) You know, there are some people that crave money, but they would ruin their lives. I have seen people that God blesses financially, and I think God blesses them so much is because it doesn't really affect them. They are as quick to give it away as have it. And when God sees people who will be a channel of his resources, God will pour out their blessings on that life because he wants to bless others through them. It's a spiritual gift, by the way, the gift of giving. It's more blessed to give than receive, and the people that God has blessed with great wealth who have the gift of giving are very happy people. I've met many rich people, however, who are very miserable people, and I've met many poor people who do anything to get rich, and they're not rich, and they're miserable as well. So the idea is covetousness, not being satisfied with what God has doled out to you. Okay, let's go back to our parable in Luke chapter 12. Then he spoke a parable saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. Same context here, speaking about covetousness. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Let you into the insights, the problems of being rich. What do I do with all that I have? By the way, you can enjoy your riches or you can employ your riches. You can just say, these are for me, they're mine. Or you can say, what can I do to serve God with what he's given me? And you'll find that when you give, it'll be given to you. Press down, running over, Jesus said. Will men give to your bosom? He said, I will do this. Now notice, there's 11 personal pronouns. Let me, let me just uh, emphasize them. What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul. See, he's got a problem. Perpendicular I-itis. It's... He's selfish. He's talking about him all the time. I had a little tea party this afternoon at three. It was very small. Three folks in all. Just I, myself, and me. That's how this guy lived. It was all his. He didn't see it as a gift from God. He saw it as his only. Second mistake he made was the mistake of time. And this is the mistake I find many people make in life. Notice what it says in verse 19. I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. He thought he had years left. Now tonight you may be sitting here thinking, you know, I've got a long time to live. I'm still young. And, I, and you might see yourself in your mind's eye of what you will be like in the next 5, 10, 20 years. You might not live a week. So you must be prepared, given the resources God has given you, the talents, the gifts, and realize that you have no guarantee of how much time God is going to give you. He made a mistake of time as well as making a mistake of himself being preeminent. So God said to him, you fool. Now, just reading this without God's commentary on this guy, you'd say, this guy is outwardly good. He's a law-abiding citizen. Doesn't picture him here as a, 
guy in the mafia or uh, an adulterer or a murderer. He's just a guy who's shrewd. He's planning his future. The problem is he is selfish. And though he might outwardly seem financially shrewd, God says, you are a fool because your priority has been you and now instead of eternity and God and his work. Beware then, disciples, of covetousness. This night your soul will be required of you, God says to this character. Then whose things, then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The most unhappy person that I have ever met is not the kind of person who doesn't get what he wants. The most unhappy person I've ever met is the person who gets what he wants. But it's a lot less wonderful than he thought it would be once he's gotten it. Oh, I can't wait. Once I get this. And they get it, it's like, drag. It didn't fulfill me. Never satisfied. Discontented. Now the third warning in verse 22 is to beware of worry. This will speak to all of us. By the way, the cure for covetousness is to realize these truths that we're about to read. Not worry about your life because God's in control. So he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit, 18 inches, to his height? Can you imagine a guy going, man, I'm so short. I'm really worried. I'm going to worry all day because I think if I worry, I'll grow a few inches. You know, I mean, the idea is to invoke the idea of, yeah, right. If you then are not able to do the least, why are you so anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. A few years back, there was a song, remember? Don't worry, be happy. It's a fun song, but it's a lot easier sung than done. Worry and anxiety has become the tyrant of the 20th century. There have been more articles on stress and anxiety of Americans, probably than any other thing that is the malaise of our culture. We have stress tests and we have anxiety problems and attacks and worry. Yet it's absolutely fruitless. Worries like a rocking chair. There's a lot of motion involved, but you don't go anywhere. It's of no profit. Do not worry about your life. The word worry in the English language comes from the German vergen or worgen, which means to strain. The Greek word worry that Jesus used is a word that means to tear, to rip asunder. And that's the idea of what worry does to the individual emotionally. It rips you up inside. It strangles you mentally and spiritually. And it doesn't help. It does you more harm than good. It doesn't do you any good. Now, some people have refined worry to a fine art. I mean, they're good at it. They could teach it as a university course. Every time you see them, they're just worried about something. 
Get up in the morning, leave the house. They worry, did I lock the door? They get on the freeway. Will I have a flat? Will I get to work on time? So they get to work. They get out of their car. They walk inside. They see somebody. They go, hi. The guy says, hi, but gives them a weird look. And they think, hmm, I wonder what he's really thinking about me. Walks by somebody's office and somebody laughs. And they go, they're probably laughing at me. They go home at night. They see their kids. They go, I wonder if my kids will live to see adulthood. And if they do, will they be rebellious? What will they be like? Every single thing. Said the robin to the sparrow, Friend, I'd surely like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. You ever see a raven or a sparrow? Ring his claws. <laughs> Say, honey, the rent's due on the nest. I don't know how I'm going to pay it. I'm going to get my little hard hat on. I'm going to go out there. And you do me a favor, honey. You worry all day for me while I'm out flying around. Okay, the implication is there is sovereign God, right? Sovereign God cares about birds, which are animals that for our purposes are for the birds. If God is sovereign God over the birds... You have a higher calling. He's your heavenly father, not just your God. He's your father. You're his child. If God, as sovereign God, cares for his creation less than you, you as a child of the father, hey, you're in good shape. David said, I was young and now I am old and I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor have I seen God's people begging for bread. That's the testimony of David. He said, I've lived a long time and I've never seen God let down his people. So you can worry if you want. It won't do you any good. And isn't it a bad testimony of the God that takes care of you? To worry about what is, what's going to happen? Jesus uses birds as an example, flowers as an example. If then God so clothes... The grass, which, is to, uh, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Grass was used as a common kindling for the bread that was baked in Israel. It still is in many places. How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? I've been on the mountainside around Galilee where Jesus spoke these words. And there are these little flowers. And if you examine them closely, they're beautiful. They just clothe as a carpet the hillsides after the rains. And it's, you know, you go there around February, March, it's trick. It's beautiful. All those lovely colors. And Jesus said, now look at this. Look at the carpet that God laid out here. It's free. <laughs> but it's going to be fuel tomorrow. Now if God can do this to a little plot of ground that is a nondescript, non-important piece of ground that nobody's using as uh, tillable soil, it's just the land. How much more will God take care of you? Oh, you of little faith. And do not seek what you should eat, nor what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things, the nations, Hagoyim would be the Hebrew term, the Gentiles, the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things, but seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Here's the deal. It's a simple deal. God is saying, look, 
I'll make it easy for you. You don't have to worry and fret. You have to be responsible. You have to cooperate. I mean, you got to go look for a job. You just don't sit around. A, a bird doesn't sit in his nest and just open his beak and expect worms to plop in. I mean, he goes out. The idea is he didn't worry about it. So you need to cooperate, but you don't need to worry and seek as the goal in your life to build up your own kingdom. God's saying, here's the deal. If you just, as a priority, seek the spreading of my kingdom, I'll take care of you. You seek first the kingdom instead of everything else, and I'll take care of everything else. You can have a single focus and all the other, other stuff I'll cover for you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, if God's going to give you his kingdom, he's going to take care of you until you get there. Sell what you have, give alms, provide yourselves money bags, which do not grow old, a treasure in heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, the fourth warning sign, the big yellow sign on the road, is uh, beginning in verse 35, and that's um, um, what do I want to say? Beware of carelessness. Carelessness. As you come to the end of times, beware of carelessness. Let your waist be girded. You know what that means? You have a, a tunic around your waist with a belt, and you're clothed. And you would take your tunic, if you wanted to work and you wanted to serve, you'd take the tunic, you'd tie it together, and you'd put it under the belt so that you could move around. You couldn't work freely or fight a battle or do any kind of task unless you were free to move around. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so blessed are those servants. The weddings in the Middle East were usually done in the nighttime because the night is the beginning of the day. You say, what? Well, when nightfall comes and you see the first three stars in the horizon, that's the beginning of the 24-hour period. When the bridegroom would come with his bride to the house, he had servants. They didn't know when the bridegroom was going to come with the bride, but they had to be ready. They had their tunics tucked into their belt. They had the lamps burning. They were ready. The last thing that you want at the wedding is for the bridegroom to come home with his bride and have to just kind of hang out at the door and people say, oh, well, you know, we're not ready yet for you. Because when they get to his house, they have a big feast and they're to be pampered for a week like a king and a queen, the marriage supper. And so the servants had to be on guard. They had to be ready at all times. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, now Jesus changes analogies from a wedding with the bride and a bridegroom to a thief entering a master's house. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But know this, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Jesus uses the analogy of a thief to speak about the unexpected nature of Jesus' return. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul said, You yourselves know perfectly well that the day of the Lord cometh as a thief in the night. In an unexpected way. Thieves do not call for appointments. Excuse me, I was in the neighborhood and wondering if uh, you're going to be home tonight. I'd like to maybe between 7 and 8 rob you. Oh, yeah, sure, I'll be out. Great. Um, I won't see you then. Bye. They wait till it's absolutely unexpected. They might look at the house, see who's home, see the pattern. And then when you don't think, when you're unaware, that thief will come. Jesus will come for his church as a thief in the night. We need to be on guard and ready and not careless. Instead of the attitude, oh, yeah, we used to say Jesus was coming a long time ago. He hadn't showed up yet. I've been waiting around for a long time, a year and a half. Oh, wow. In the scheme of eternity, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years at much, he is coming. He is coming soon. Watch. Be ready. And then Peter said to him, and we'll finish this up, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? The Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat the men servants and the maid servants to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, and an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in two and appoint his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do accordingly, according to his will, will be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few. For every one to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it's accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to bring peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. From now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two, two against three. Father will be divided against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. When you see the cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be hot weather, and there is. Hypocrites, hypocrites, actors, mask wearers, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth. But how is it that you do not discern the time? There's an emphasis I don't want you to miss, from verses 35 to 48 especially. It's the idea of being ready and not careless in serving. You know, a lot of us are keen on knowing and not on serving. Oh, we want a certain kind of Bible study that fits just us or certain kind that gets into this nuance and that. And you know what? There's Bible studies coming out of our ears. I'm not advocating senseless service. I'm not advocating work without waiting or worship. But Jesus is coming. You've got a short time. Wait on him. Be refreshed by him. And then get busy. And the emphasis here is on the servant 
who isn't just knowing and underlining and memorizing and having his little clique and his little group, but his waist is girded, the lamps are burning, he's serving, he's ready, because he doesn't know exactly when the master is going to come. And he doesn't engage in loose living, saying, ah, he's going to take a long time. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm kind of angry. I'm kind of, I've been waiting for him for years. Forget him. Jesus said, that's a wicked servant. In verse 54, the fifth and final yellow sign is to beware of spiritual dullness. He talks about the signs of the sky. The Jews were fond of saying, you know, the, the old saying that we say, the, the sailor's signal. Red sky in the morning, sailor's warning. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. You could look at the sky, see the clouds, and predict the weather. Of course, uh, I don't think we've gotten much better with our fancy satellites and you hear the weatherman, it's going to be this way tomorrow and this way then, and it's not, you know, a lot of the time. The prognostications are weak. But these Jewish people had the scriptures. They had the predictions. They knew, according to the scriptures, they should have known exactly when the Messiah was coming and what to look for. And yet their spiritual leaders were leading them astray. And they talk about the ability to discern the natural sky. But they weren't able to see what God is doing. Isn't it amazing? We can send people to the moon. We can predict the uh, arrangements of things and uh, the turning of the earth and the trajectory of the moon and plot it all out. But so many times we don't know what God's doing in the earth. And he's moving incredibly. Man can send men to the moon. Man cannot get himself to heaven. Only God can. Yes, and... Why, even of yourselves, do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, that's the judge, to court, make every effort along the way to settle with him. Settle out of court. Lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last mite. Now anyone that I've ever met will do whatever he can to stay out of jail. But it's so sad, I meet so many people that don't care about staying out of hell. Everything for temporary comfort, they have no thought for eternal comfort. Their priorities are askew. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last might. Jesus, I think, was predicting nationally the fall of Israel in 70 A.D. by the Romans. He saw what was coming. He knew that every stone in the temple would be taken apart, that the Romans would surround them. A storm of judgment was coming nationally upon them. Now, a storm of judgment will come to this earth one day. And whether you or I live to see it or not is irrelevant. All of us will stand before God one day. Are you prepared? Have you taken shelter? For that coming storm of judgment? Are you prepared to meet God? If not, then you're like that guy in the parable. He's thinking about his crops, his barns, his this, his future, his college, his car, instead of his soul. And you, you might be wise for a moment, but a fool for eternity. It's not worth it. That's why God called this person a fool. Others on Wall Street would say, he's wise. God said, he's a fool. Are you a fool spiritually? Why remain one? 
Make a wise choice. It was Indiana Jones, the last film that they made. When they were in the cave and they were looking for the Holy Grail. And uh, listen, I went to the movie that time for all the deep spiritual insights that I could get. And there were all of these cups, these chalices, some of you may remember. There was the fancy one. There was the earthen one, the very simple one. And the first guy grabbed the fanciest chalice he could find, adorned with jewels, thinking, this is what the Son of God would have taken to drink out of. Speaks of royalty. And he drank it, and he melted. Remember, he melted completely. And the guy who was keeping the grail said, he chose poorly. (laughs) Understatement of the film. And then, of course, Indiana Jones saw the humble earthenware chalice. He said, now Jesus, being from Nazareth, being a man of the people, would have chosen this simple vessel. And that was the one. You might be making choices about your future. Could it be said, he chose poorly? Or he chose wisely? Which is it? If you make a choice and keep God as the primary focus... The master passion of your life, it's a wise choice. Any other choice less than that is a foolish choice. Oh God, I pray that you'd help us to make choices today, tomorrow, this week. Choices with our finances, choices with our family, choices about what we're going to be doing in life, that we'd make it based upon the eternal values of the kingdom of God, not temporary values, not temporary choices, not peer pressure. I pray, Lord, that the crowds wouldn't affect us. You said the fear of man brings a snare. But whoever trusts in God will not be ashamed. Oh God, give us your strength, we pray. To make wise, godly, eternal choices that please you. Because one day our soul will be in one of two places. You've said that. So tonight, Lord, I pray for those of us who are believers that we would be responsible in the time in which we live, that we would, as we go down the road of life, see those yellow signs and take notice of them and beware and read them into our lives. Not make the wrong turn, not make the wrong choice. Then I pray, Father, for those who are not yet believers, that they would do anything to stay out of the eternal pit. And thank you, Lord, that you've given us the one and only provision for that, the death of Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross. That the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse a man from all sin. And I pray for any man, woman, any young or old who is in this auditorium or listening over the airwaves right now who doesn't yet know you personally, who has not surrendered their life to you. And I pray, Lord, that you bring them to that decision. As you're in a time of meditation and contemplation and you're here tonight, If you would realize and admit that you're apart from God, but you would like to know that you are saved and forgiven, and you'd like to surrender your life to Jesus Christ tonight. If that's so, I'd like you to raise your hand right now. I'd like you to raise your hand right now. I'd like you to raise your hand right now. I'd like you to raise your hand right now. I'd like you to raise your hand right now. I'd like you to raise your hand right now. I'd like you to raise your hand right now. I'd like you to raise your hand right now.